Let me say good morning once again. It is really good to see all of you here this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you blessed us. Father, we thank you for yesterday and our vacation Bible school. Thank you for bringing all of those children and all those families to be with us. And we just pray, Father, that your name was glorified because of what happened here yesterday. And Father, we know and trust that that did occur. Father, we pray that today as we spend time in your word, that it'll be time that will draw us closer to you and closer to Jesus and closer to each other. And just pray, Father, that in this time, in this place, your name will also be glorified. Father, our desire is to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that this will be another step in that direction so that we may become people who truly are disciples of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ in, in every place at all times and in every situation so that everybody will know that we are followers of the Christ. We pray this in his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So we are in our third week of a sermon series. It's called Face to Face with Jesus. And over the next couple of months, we're going to spend our time together talking about different encounters that people had with Jesus Christ when they came face to face with him. We'll look at how their lives were changed and impacted by their encounters with Jesus Christ. And we'll do that with an intention to figure out how their encounters with Jesus Christ can impact us as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. So in the first week, we talked about an encounter that the disciples had with Jesus, and Peter specifically, when they were walking along, and Jesus turned to them and said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you are Elijah, and some say you are John the Baptist, and some say that you're a prophet. And then he looked them in the eye, face to face, and he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, as he usually does, jumped right in and said, you are the Christ. And through that encounter, we looked at and we explored many different things. But one of the things that we learned is that who we say Jesus is, who we determine Jesus is, in many ways defines who we are. And it defines what our life is going to be like going forward as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. In our second week, last week, we talked about uh, John the Baptist and a couple of encounters that he had with Jesus Christ. The first encounter was at the Jordan River when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And in that encounter, we saw that Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit all embraced and affirmed John's call to repentance and to baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then we looked at another encounter that John the Baptist had with Jesus, and this was an indirect encounter while John was in prison. And in that encounter, we saw that the imprisoned John asked a question of his disciples. They said, go ask Jesus, is he the one, or should we wait for another one? And Jesus affirmed that he was the one, and he affirmed it by letting them know that he was the Messiah, the Messiah that was here to redeem the Messiah that was here to save, the Messiah that was here to break down the, the bonds that were holding people in slavery. And that's the kind of Messiah we serve. That's our Jesus. So this week, we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had with a paralyzed man and with other people who surrounded that paralyzed man in a very unusual circumstance. And we'll see that the story is very familiar to us, but it's really a very unusual healing story, a very unusual miracle story. Those of us who have spent a lot of time in the Bible have become kind of familiar with what miracle stories and what healing stories do, what they look like, how they progress, how they flow. 
This is a story that breaks some of those rules, that flows in a different way than most of them. Typical miracle stories, typical healing stories have three common and three essential elements. And those elements are, first, the problem is stated. We find out what the problem is. For example, uh, this will sound familiar, a squall came down on the lake so that they were being swamped and they were in great danger. The problem is there's a storm and the lives are in danger. Or maybe this one's familiar, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. The problem is a man is blind and he has to resort to begging in order to make ends meet, in order to survive. The second common element is the problem is then presented to Jesus. Jesus confronts the problem, if you will. It comes to him. This will sound familiar too. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm... I jumped ahead. The disciples went to Jesus and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. So Jesus confronts the problem. The problem is brought to him. Or in our healing story, we read this. Jesus stopped and ordered the blind man brought to him. So not only does the problem exist, the problem comes face to face, comes in contact with Jesus Christ. And then the third common element is Jesus solves the problem. Jesus takes care of the problem. He fixes the problem, if you will. In our story of the storm, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Or in our healing story, Jesus said to the blind man, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received a sight and followed Jesus, praising God. Three common elements. The problem is stated, the problem is presented to Jesus, and Jesus solves the problem. Jesus takes care of the problem, he fixes it. But in our story this morning, the story of this paralyzed man who's miraculously healed by Jesus, the story doesn't flow like that. Jesus interrupts the typical flow, and he interrupts it in a way that should surprise us and certainly surprise the people who are witnessing the story. So in this story, the problem is stated. The problem is brought before Jesus, and Jesus does solve the problem. But he doesn't solve the problem until there's an interruption. There's an interruption that takes place. There's a a surprising offer that Jesus makes. And then there's a debate that goes on between Jesus and some other people before he actually fixes the problem, before he heals the man. So if you will, listen to the story and listen to the flow of the story, how it develops, how it occurs. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. So the problem has been stated. There's a man who is paralyzed. There's a paralytic that is involved in the story. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the man, the the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. So the problem, the paralyzed man is brought before Jesus. Jesus encounters him, and he do it in a really ingenious way. And so far, it's a normal miracle story. And then when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Our expectation should be that Jesus is going to say, Son, rise up and walk out of here. But that's not what he does. He interrupts the normal flow of the story. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The problem, the paralysis, is not solved. The man's still lying on the mat. 
He's still paralyzed. So Jesus, instead of solving the stated problem, he takes the story. He takes the narrative. He also takes the paralytic and his friends and the crowd, and he takes us on a surprising detour. This story interrupts the typical flow that we're used to. It interrupts the expected sequence that we're used to. And it does it with a surprising offer, an offer of forgiveness, and also thrown in as a theological debate. So can you kind of imagine the reaction of the man on the mat? He's been lowered through the roof. He's in Jesus' presence. He's looking for healing. And what does he get instead? He gets talk about forgiveness. He gets talk about whether Jesus is actually someone who can provide forgiveness. And all the time he's laying on the mat. And can you imagine the reaction of his friends? They're still up on the roof peering down through the hole with the expectation that healing is going to take place. And instead, they get talk of forgiveness. They get talk of whether Jesus is the one who can provide forgiveness. We can only speculate about how the man on the mat reacted to this. We can only speculate about how the men on the roof reacted to this. But fortunately, we can read how some other people, some people in the crowd, actually did react to Jesus' offer of forgiveness. The reaction is what sets off the debate that is to come. So in verse 6, we read this. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. So you see the shift that's occurred. The focus is no longer on the man on the mat. The focus isn't even on the men who are peering down through the roof watching what's going on. Instead, the focus is now on Jesus. And the focus is on his pronouncement that seems to have really nothing to do with the problem that's at hand, the paralysis. Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm afraid that for us, that pronouncement may not even really register with us. Because that's kind of what we expect Jesus to say. That's kind of what we expect Jesus to do. In our world, in our thinking, Jesus is not only a healer, but he is also a forgiver. In our world, we think of Jesus as being the divine son of God. But that wasn't the case for these men in the crowd. It wasn't the case for these teachers of the law, for these Jewish scribes. That's not how they viewed Jesus. You see, they could accept that Jesus was a teacher. They could even accept the fact that Jesus was a healer. But they couldn't accept the fact that Jesus had any kind of claim, any kind of power, any kind of authority to forgive sins. That's where they had to draw the line with Jesus. See, forgiving sins is a privilege that is reserved for God, and it's reserved for God alone. So in this debate, so this conflict between Jesus and the scribes is not about God's power to forgive sins. The scribes would readily concede that forgiveness of sins is in God's domain. That is something that God does. That's not their problem with Jesus. Their problem with Jesus, the the debate, the conflict, is about whether Jesus is the one who has that authority. The conflict is about Jesus' scandalous claim that he has the authority to actually mediate God's forgiveness, 
to actually mete out God's forgiveness. The scribes are shocked and scandalized that Jesus, or anyone else for that matter, would claim to be able to forgive sins. They're scandalized that Jesus would claim powers, claim authority that are reserved for God. And the reason all of the tension has shifted away from the man on the mat, and even from the men on the roof, is because Jesus has put his crowd in a very uncomfortable situation. He's created a lot of tension in the room, if you will. Because when he offered forgiveness to the man on the mat, he left his audience with really only two options. They only have two options when they hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. They can either believe that Jesus is an arrogant and possibly delusional blasphemer because he's here claiming that he has the power and authority to forgive sins. That's the first option that they have. The second option that they have is they can choose to believe that he is truly divine, that he is truly the Son of God, that he does have the power and authority to forgive sins. That's the only two options that he leaves his audience with. It's obvious from the reading that the scribes have chosen option one. They believe that Jesus is an arrogant blasphemer. And that's what's in their heart, that's what's in their minds, that's what's in their thoughts. For us to understand the tension that's in that room, we need to understand a little bit about the gravity of accusing someone of blasphemy. It's serious business. It's tense business to be thinking that someone is a blasphemer. The Jews, like God himself, are very protective of God's name. They take very seriously any insult to God's name. They take very seriously anyone claiming power and authority for themselves that belongs to God. In fact, in Jewish law, blasphemy is a capital offense. You're put to death for blasphemy. We'll read quickly from Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15. God says, Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether he's an alien or native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. This is serious stuff that's going on in the room. This is extreme stuff. It's tense in the room. See, the, the choices couldn't be any more extreme. Either Jesus is worthy of death as a blasphemer, or he's worthy of worship as the Son of God. But I don't want us to lose sight of a question that Jesus asks in the midst of all this tension. He says, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven... Or is it easier to say, take up your mat and walk? I believe that's a really subtle and it's a a complicated question that Jesus asks in the midst of the tension. It's a question I want us to consider seriously. Which is easier to say? Let's pretend for a moment that the man on the mat is here among us. There's a hole in the roof right up above there, so you guys in the middle might want to be careful. Things might still be falling down. There's still men on the rough roof peering down at the man on the mat. He's here among us. And they're asking for healing. And if they asked me, which is easier for me to say? Is it easier for me to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier for me to say, get up and walk out of here? Well, it's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier to say? 
Well, because there's no tangible proof one way or the other whether his sins are forgiven or not. If I say, get up off your mat and walk, immediately you know whether I have the power to heal, don't you? Because if he gets up off the mat and walks out, I've got it. If he doesn't, I don't. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But there's a maybe more important question. And the more important question is this. Is it easier to forgive sins? Or is it easier to heal? Which is easier to do? Is it easier to forgive sins? Or is it easier to forgive, to heal the paralysis? Well, using me again as an example, for me, they're exactly the same, right? Each one's equally easy, because I can't do either one. They're both impossible for me. I can't forgive sins, and I can't heal. So neither one are possible for me to do. But for Jesus, who does have the power, who does have the authority to both heal and forgive sins, it's a really complex question. Which is easier for Jesus to do? To heal the man or to forgive his sins? Let me phrase it a slightly different way. Which comes at a greater cost to Jesus, to heal the man or to forgive his sins? See, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus forgiving sins not only requires power and authority, it comes at a cost. It comes at a dear cost. Forgiving sins, forgiving the sins of the man on the mat, forgiving the sins of me, forgiving the sins of us requires payment. It requires sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be made by Jesus so that sins could be forgiven. Philippians chapter 2 is a familiar passage. Listen to these words from that passage. Jesus, even though he was in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance like a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The forgiveness of sins comes at a great cost. And it was paid not by the one who committed the sins. It's paid by the one against who the sins were committed. So that's the tension that's going on in the room. That's the difficulty that people are facing. I feel kind of bad. We've left the man on the mat. He's still paralyzed, so let's take care of that. Um, He's been there. We've talked about blasphemy. We've talked about divinity and forgiveness and authority and power and all kinds of church words. And all this time, he's been on the mat. But that's the situation he was in when he was face-to-face with Jesus while this debate is going on. But the men on the roof and the man on the mat came for healing. So let's read Mark 2, verse 10. Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic and he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, We have never seen anything like this. Did you catch what Jesus said? He said, so that you will know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk out of here and take your mat with you. See, Jesus healed to demonstrate that he had the power and that he had the authority. 
But we need to understand that Jesus' focus in his ministry was not on physical healing, even though he did a lot of physical healing while he was here. Instead, the focus of Jesus' ministry was on restoring relationships between people and their God. His focus was on the restoration of people to their God. And in this situation, God recognized that it wasn't the paralysis that stood between the man and his God. It was the sin in his life that stood between the man and his God. And so we as Christians, people who are standing on the other side of the cross from this paralyzed man, we find tremendous solace. We find tremendous comfort in the very thing that the scribes found sacrilegious, found blasphemous, found scandalous. And that's the fact that we have a God who willingly enters our world and extends to us both healing and forgiveness. There's great comfort, there's great solace in the fact that we have a God who's entered our world and gives us healing and forgiveness. See, unlike for the scribes, the scandal for us isn't Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins. That doesn't scandalize us. The scandal for us is the fact that we are desperately dependent on him for our forgiveness. That's the scandal of the cross. For us, the scandal is the price that was required to be paid for our sins. The scandal is that Jesus had to pay such a dear price to be able to turn to me and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. The scandal is that Jesus had to pay such a dear price to turn to you and say, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. The scandal of the cross is that we, all of us, the man on the mat and the men on the roof, All of us here, the scribes, the crowd, all of us are sinners. And we're sinners who are unable to stand on our own before God. We're paralyzed before God. Without Jesus, we, every single one of us, is paralyzed before God. We're helpless before God. But thanks be to God and thanks be to Jesus that the scandal of the cross is also the glory of the cross. Because Jesus Christ, our Savior, did enter our world. And he has lifted us up. And he's done that with his grace, and he's done that with his forgiveness. And so now we're no longer paralyzed before God. Because of Jesus Christ, we're able to stand before God. We're able to stand before him whole and complete. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. For he talking about God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In that same chapter, if we skip down to verse 19, we read this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. It's the glory of the cross. And it means that we're no longer paralyzed before God because Jesus has reconciled us to God. And so we stand before God without blemish and without guilt. 
So as we near our close, I want you to think back to the reaction of the crowd. The reaction when the man actually got up. When he took his mat and he walked out in full view of everybody else. Scripture tells us that they were amazed. They were amazed at what happened. And of course they were amazed at what happened. And the reaction was they praised God and they said, We have never seen anything like that. I want to encourage all of us to never stop being amazed at what Jesus Christ has done for us. Never stop being amazed that we're no longer paralyzed before God because of what he's done for us. And may we never stop praising God for setting us free so that we're able to walk in God's presence. I want to end our time together with just a few concrete applications for us. Some applications that we can take from the paralyzed man's face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. The first application that I want to take away is, let's be people who never respond like the scribes and place limits on God's power. Because there is no limit to God's power. We read in Ephesians chapter 3 that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine. Let's not be guilty of ever putting limits on God's power. Let's especially never be guilty of thinking that we or anyone else is somehow beyond God's reach. Let's not ever be guilty of thinking that we are ever beyond God's redemption, beyond God's reconciliation, and neither is anybody else. Because the God who forgave and healed the man on the mat can do immeasurably more in people's lives than we can even imagine. Let's not place limits on God's power. Second, let's make sure we don't present the church primarily as a place of healing. And that's because it is ultimately a place where divine forgiveness occurs. The church is where divine forgiveness occurs. You've probably noticed, but our world is full of healers. It's full of healers because we live in a world where there's all kinds of pain. There's all kinds of dysfunction. There's all kinds of people in need of a cure of some kind. There's doctors and there's surgeons. There's psychiatrists and psychologists. There's acupuncturists and herbalists. There's chiropractors and massage therapists. There's financial counselors and marriage counselors. And I could go on and on, read through the yellow pages for several minutes, but I won't do that. All those people are in the healing business But we need to recognize that the church can't always heal. The church can't always fix what's wrong in people's lives. There will be many problems that are presented to us that we can't solve. Some broken relationships won't be restored. Some financial difficulties won't be overcome. And certainly not all injuries and illnesses will be cured. But the role of the church is like the role of the men on the roof. Our job is to put people into the healing presence of Jesus Christ. Put them in the healing presence of God so they can receive his divine forgiveness. That's the role of the church. And when we do that, when we bring people into the healing presence of God, what's going to occur? Healing's going to occur. Not because of what we have done, but because of what God will do. It's healing as a result of lives forever changed by God's forgiving grace. That's the kind of healing that takes place 
in the church. So the church must be a place where broken relationships with God are restored. It must be a place where poverty of spirit is overcome. It must be a place where spiritual injuries and spiritual illnesses are cured by the loving forgiveness of God. That's the role of the church. And most remarkably, the church is a place where the dead are raised to life by encountering Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. Fourth application. When we're dealing with forgiveness, we need to make sure that we never stay on the extremes of forgiveness. We should always avoid those extremes. So at one end of the spectrum, we must make sure that we never trivialize God's forgiveness. Never trivialize God's forgiveness. Paul, in the sixth chapter of Romans, asked a couple of really penetrating questions. The first question he asked is, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? I think it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is, of course we shouldn't go on sinning so that grace may increase. And then later on in the chapter, he asks a second question. He says, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, a rhetorical question, but again, the answer is, of course we shouldn't sin because we're no longer under the law. We need to understand that God's forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. It was bought at a heavy price. God's forgiveness is a free gift to us, but it cost God dearly. God's forgiveness isn't trivial. It places demands on us. It demands that we not continue to live like we did before we encountered Jesus. It demands that we live like the new creations that we actually are. And it demands that we extend the same gracious forgiveness to other people that has been extended to us by God. Let's never trivialize God's forgiveness. But let's also not be guilty of the other extreme. The other extreme is exhibiting moral superiority over those who haven't yet accepted God's grace. We need to make sure that Paul's reminder to Titus continues to be our reminder today. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Titus this. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We, as disciples, forgiven by the grace of God, need to always show humility to everyone. We need to show humility because we are not superior to anyone. The only thing different about us is we have pledged ourselves to Jesus Christ. And we've acknowledged that we are completely reliant on him for our salvation. No one inside the walls of this church are any more deserving of God's forgiveness than anybody outside those walls. 
Forgiveness comes from God, not from anything that we do. Finally, we all need to understand that the power of God's forgiveness is most clearly seen and accepted when we practice forgiveness in our own lives. It's most clearly seen and accepted when we forgive others. Because when we forgive others, we provide tangible evidence to them that God has truly forgiven them. Maybe you're like me. I assume that you are. You can hear that God has forgiven you. You can even read in the book that God has forgiven you. You can even intellectually believe that God has forgiven you. But sometimes it's really hard to feel like God has forgiven you. And the best way to feel like God has forgiven you is when you see your brothers and sisters show that they have forgiven you. That's what gives us the tangible evidence that we need to feel that God has forgiven us. And make no mistake, God's people are to be in the forgiving business. We're to be in the very image of God who has forgiven us. And may I remind us who continues to forgive us. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So my question for us this morning is, how are we going to respond to God's loving forgiveness? From that passage, let me pull out seven words as a very good starting point. Compassionate. Kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, and loving. May we be a people who are compassionate to each other, who are kind to each other, who interact with each other in humility, who are gentle with each other, who are patient with each other, who are forgiving with each other, and who always love each other. Finally, let me just say a word to some of you who may be here feeling like you are paralyzed before God. Maybe there's things in your past or maybe there's things going on in your present right now that you feel like you cannot stand before God because of the sin that is in your life. I want you to know that God stands ready right now through his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive whatever sin is in your past, to forgive whatever sin is in your present. And we as a church here, we want to help. We want to be like those men on the roof. We want to help bring you into the forgiving presence of God, into the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. So what we'd like to do is provide that help. And there's a couple of ways that you can let us know that you are in need of God's forgiveness. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song. One of the things that you can do is you can walk to the front and you can let us know that you're seeking to be in God's presence so that you can be forgiven. That may not be comfortable for you. If it's not, we understand that. So there's a more private way that you can do that. As we're singing the song, you can walk to the back. You can ask to be directed to room 104. And in that room, you'll find a couple of our elders, godly men who would like nothing better, nothing better in the world than to talk to you about Jesus and his forgiving presence. 
So whatever your need is, please let us know while we stand and sing this song.